Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. There hasn't been a mark of any kind. The coroner's so confused that he almost held a post-mortem on himself. All right, welcome to another episode of 50 Date Night Screams. This is episode nine, A Face in the Fog. And welcome my co-host, whose face is not behind a fog, Mike, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I, I think that's a compliment. Thank you for <laughs> noticing my face. <laughs> the title of the movie is A Face in the Fog. We have to dissect that and determine whether or not it is reflective of what actually happens in the movie um you didn't spoiler. call me sanchi so we're off to a good start sanchi. So. I, it's oof. all right yes okay well that'll make that'll make sense in a minute <laughs> will it though will it i feel like no okay so let's talk about this movie a face in the fog the director is robert f hill it is black and white, 55 minutes long, and the year is 1936. This movie has a 4.4 out of 10 on IMDb. And the hilarious tagline, ready for it, from Out of the Darkness Strikes, The Fiend. The fiend. I do rather enjoy an M-dash, a finely placed M-dash, enjoyable to me but this tagline doesn't make a whole lot of fucking sense <laughs> well it, there's at least five different names for the potential villain so that's that's just one of them is the fiend oh okay all right well we'll get into that all right let's let's read the summary the summary that i have not read until this exact moment which is always a fun time dangerous right. yeah yeah it's dangerous but it's all good all right a face in the fog a stage company cast finds themselves terrified when a bizarre killer known as The Fiend targets them for death. A pair of reporters and their clumsy photographer set out to work the story of The Fiend and find themselves targets as well. Just as you think our trio of heroes has the case solved, you're thrown into another twist that has you wondering who the killer really is that says nothing <laughs> <laughs> also it screws over elmer and i'm just going to start now that elmer is my favorite character i would like to have an audio clip of someone shouting like alvin like elmer and also they didn't mention him by name so elmer is the incompetent photographer and he's very important to the plot is he though <laughs> <laughs> he is <laughs> through his own stupidity and action elmer is critical to the plot all right. Well, that summary basically tells you nothing. Let's start at the very beginning, because I think probably the first two to three minutes of this film is the strongest two to three minutes in the film, because we begin on our plucky reporter who is at home by herself and someone breaks into her home and she figures it out locks the door, has to get away from him and runs out into the street. And it's a there's some tension there. It's pretty good. You see she's holding a newspaper and it talks about that there's a killer. So you kind of put that together that this is probably the person. What's hilarious about this scene, and I didn't think about it the first time that I watched it, but on subsequent viewings, I realized that there is someone in her home. It, it's a big house. So she's like, upstairs i think there's someone in her home presumably there to do her harm she's trying to get away she grabs her coat she puts on her hat <laughs> like 
like she gets ready to go out. Like she's going out and goes out to the goes out into the street and is like, taxi, taxi. And I'm like, what? Like you don't go to a neighbor's? Like like that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So everything prior to her running out of the house, like it was it it started off pretty good. It I was very like. New York City. It felt very like <laughs> You right. know, you just one just gets a taxi if one wants to flee the scene of be potentially being murdered. Yeah, yeah. And there are several things in the movie that are clearly a little off. The first being her running out into the street and you hear, help, help. It sounds like a 12-year-old is – it's like the weirdest <laughs> thing. It's, it's, you know, the the sound at points is kind of impressive to me. And then at other points, it's really lacking. So it was really inconsistent. There are other scenes that I thought were very well done, the sound editing and the engineering, but that was kind of off. Then the taxi, a taxi like pulls up and then the poor taxi driver who just shows up. The face, a face appears. No, there's no face, right? There's no no face. The fiend. The The fiend fiend. appears, but not a face and there's no fog. (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) <laughs> That's a different movie, I guess. I'm not really <laughs> so anyway, the taxi driver suddenly goes, grabs his neck, goes, oh, and like, you know, falls down and oops, he's dead. And so she's then left there in the street with the dead taxi driver who's been murdered with a gun, but we hear no gunshot, right? That was another right. thing about the sound editing. Although now it's just occurring to me that maybe there's a reason why you don't hear a gunshot. No, I think it's just sucky. <laughs> this is one of the first films we've watched that really the technical inability to do some of this stuff correctly impaired the film, unfortunately. Like there's, so, there's pretty important sound effects, the ending included, where because it's just missing or the transfer is bad, it, the film really gets hobbled by what it's trying to do. So it's unfortunate because, you know, we're pretty forgiving of the time and place that these films are, were made. But this one is cheap right and oh my gosh you like while you were talking i remembered something and then it went away again (laughs) because that's how it is when you're turning 50 and you're drinking a glass of wine you just repeatedly (laughs) let me let me let me fill in and you maybe come back so frank shows up so frank gordon is gene monroe's uh i guess fiance fiance right yeah and he this is very common in these these movies right which is they there's usually one female reporter and a love interest which by the way spoiler alert almost almost always ends in them either proposing or getting married in some way shape or form at the end that's always the weird rap that what has do you mean to happen. way shape or form you either get married or you don't well sometimes it's like a proposal sometimes in this case they were already had there was a he yeah was they're a already they're already betrothed. so then it's this was like whether the honeymoon was gonna you know th- so this was a little bit further along but it's always something where it's like now they're finally going to get together and get married and have big okay. babies yeah. i guess yeah in you know late 30s style so it, it's frank and gene is sort of a team which i thought it was interesting um trying to figure this out but the intro sort of glosses over and it really glosses it over pretty quickly is that gene utterly compromises any writing journalistic integrity because she did not see the fiend's face. She says she did, but she didn't. Well, not only did she say, she wrote about it. Right. And there's some things here that are a little anachronistic. She's the drama reporter for the local newspaper, the town, the city newspaper. I think it's supposed to be she covers the theater circuit. And The Fiend had already killed two actors, I'm pretty sure, which is also glossed over super quick. And it may be because the transfer, you can't see it on the screen. Oh, okay. But that's – he has already been killing people. That's why she's – he has this – he has a nickname. This right. is why she's trying so to – So she's like the art and culture. Okay. Right. All right. I think that's what that's So then why to. is she writing about the – and then saying she, that she saw him and she then She straight her, up says it's it's for the Instagram followers. What? <laughs> 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 That's what she's used like, yeah, I, I need to get my name in the paper. Hey, it worked. Oops, right. he's trying to kill me now. Yeah. So, I mean, are we going to address, you know, integrity or, you know, <laughs> like, no. I mean, nobody blinks. They bring it up and they're yeah, like, well, you should have done that. Blinks. And, like, ah, the editor doesn't bring it up. I was like, is she supposed to be the gossip reporter? Like, I didn't understand, like, how she could get away with saying, oh, I saw The Fiend. 
but she actually didn't. She can't identify him. Right. But she, and not only that, she put it in the paper, the paper she, where she works, which is yeah. called the journal, I guess, right? Yeah. So she published it in the journal. The editor approved it. Certainly her fiance knows about it. But the police, no one seems to have any interest in going, well, if you saw him, could you help us solve the crime? Well, I don't so know, because she didn't. So she didn't go to the police and say, I saw the fiend who has been running around and has killed a couple of people at the theater that I presumably spend a lot of nights at reviewing their shows or whatever. Mm-hmm. And But she writes that, and then it doesn't occur to anybody that she's going to be a target. So that's why she is the, you know, the first target in the movie. We're coming in, this person is, this the fiend is already murdering people. The papers have already given him a name. Right. And... We're at the point where nobody has actually seen them and can identify them, but she's making believe that she can. So she becomes the target. The fiance read Frank. the paper, Frank. read what she wrote, you know, which they call it a yarn. They're like, I wrote in the yarn, which a yarn is like means something that you wrote or a story that's like not true. Like to me, that's what right. that means. You know, yeah. it's not like a story in a paper. So that's interesting. So Frank shows up, they grab her. And they decide to go to a hotel because they're like, well, you're clearly not safe at home because <laughs> you did this dumb thing. And they go to a hotel. After that, everything gets really confusing. <laughs> but in any case, there is a murderer. Nobody knows who it is yet. And the murderer keeps popping up as we go through the movie to kill more people. Well, and not just that. They are dying from mysterious wounds that are not mysterious and don't make any sense. So we find out eventually at some point that they've been poisoned. But there's no obvious wounds on them. And no one actually figures out why. It turns out that – so enter – a handsome man enters, <laughs> Peter Fortune, right? So Peter Fortune is an amateur criminologist. What, what else does he do? Is, is he, he's a, he's a, a He's writer. like doing all of this stuff. He's right. a playwright. Playwright, He's producing a play. Mm-hmm. And it's the play that's being – that the fiend is coming and hunting the actors – and then on the side, he's doing, like, crime work, <laughs> like right. helping out the police. It's wild. Yeah. And this is funny because I was we were talking about just recently about um, one of the movies we'll be seeing is about Edgar Allan Poe. And Edgar Allan Poe helped create this kind of character, which is actually the inspiration of Sherlock Holmes. And it, it's this idea of this amateur, very smart criminologist that essentially is not tied to police and presumably has a little bit more freedom because he's not a police officer. Uh, that would change, right? Over time, that would be that that, that would be an investigator who actually is the police officer, a uh, detective, a detective who's a police officer. So, uh, but this is very much always these sort of hobbyist kind of fringe characters who are very intellectual, and they all sort of know crime, and and everybody just takes them at their word. They're like, "Oh, good, Peter Fortune's here. He can help us with the crime." And he sort of just swans into the room and everybody's like, oh, good, Peter Fortune's here. I love his name, by the way. And defer to him on what the crimes must be and how they're perpetrated, which is not really set up well to explain what the issue is to begin with because it doesn't seem like everybody's really that puzzled about how they died because they clearly died from poison. But we then find out there's sort of a special way they're dying, right? That takes some time before anybody figures that out they sort of just put it together i don't think there's ever any physical well evidence. peter fortune tells everybody <laughs> right says, yeah you know they, how he's yeah. doing he's it. like oh you know anyway so <laughs> they're at the theater under pretense and this is the part where the sound was so interesting to me because what's happening is is that you're seeing uh, a run-through of the musical or whatever it is that they're producing and it's a dance and there's music and then it's cutting in and out with the fiend, presumably, you know, there's a figure, a dark cloaked figure skulking around, obviously getting ready to choose his next victim. And so you're cutting back and forth, but the music is consistent the whole time. But you're in the room with the music and then the music fades a little bit because you're in another. So it's kind of weird to me that like that was so beautifully done and the act itself is pretty involved. It's not like one person dancing around. It's a whole choreographed situation. So, you know, so somebody choreographed it. They practiced it and they filmed the whole thing. You're only seeing part of it because it's cutting back and forth. But that scene was so well done that it is so interesting that other parts 
The sound is inconsistent. They used weird voiceovers. There's no gunshots at certain points when a gun is clearly shot. There are parts where the last word people say in a sentence is cut off. Yeah. Like that happens quite a few times. And also, too, I don't know if that's because of the way that it was transferred or the way it was moved over. I did want to point out that the DVD that we have was actually better quality than the YouTube video. I think a lot of times we're seeing the reverse. Mm -hmm. But in this case, what we watched on the TV looked and sounded much better than when I was trying to view it again or view pieces of it again. And so I was using the YouTube video. So that's an interesting point to it as well. Yeah, the film feels unfinished. I mean, it almost feels like the audio work was rushed and then somebody just didn't get to finish it. But to your point, we'll never know. We don't know maybe if it, there's errors and it just didn't transfer well. Um, there were certainly clips and jumps, too. I mean, there was a couple visual issues. It wasn't just the sound, uh, unfortunately, because this is a fairly complex story for, you know, what is it, an hour? I remember how long it is. Yeah, it's just under an hour. Yeah, it's yeah. really complex. There's a lot of different locations. There's the theater and the hotel and the the police office. Gosh, this police. is 55 minutes. I, that may be the shortest we've seen. I feel um, like there was like pretty, a 59. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah. So there was a couple other ones that were just about that long too. Anyway, they're there in the theater. And they're invited, by the way. So the other thing is... That it's a setup, right? It's the a setup. It's under pretense, them right? Yeah. Under the pretense of the lead actor who wants to tell them something important. And, of course, that's the climax is they're like, hey, we're here. And he's like, that's he's great. He's like, why, why are, are you, you here? here? Yeah. So they're talking to him, and his name is – I wrote it down. His name <laughs> – This is the Adagio the, dancer. Ted the Adagio Wallington. dancer. His name is Ted Wallington. See, his name really didn't – sound like much of anything his name is ted wallington he's the adagio dancer i had to look up adagio what is it that is a person who is a dancer a performer but it's kind of a little bit more like a, a circus or acrobatic oh okay that's what that scene is it's not just you know a couple people dancing right he's lifting people like it's very involved you know and it and it's quite beautiful but anyway, so he starts talking to them. He starts saying that he thinks he knows who the fiend is, right? Which is also kind of wild because they were there to talk to him for no reason. They, it was all a pretense. And then all of a sudden, again, you know, like he grabs his neck or whatever and, oh, uh, you know. Well, I think the lights go falls out. Over. Right? The, lights go the lights out. go out. Yeah, the lights go out. He falls over, is trying to get out one last sentence, doesn't do it, dies right there. And, you know, everybody's screaming, the, all the, you know, the actresses are screaming, the dancers, everyone's in a panic, and he's murdered. And then once again, the fiend gets away. Elmer's there. Elmer, the photographer that we never see take a photo. He just runs around the tripod. It's he great. just runs around getting into trouble and like saying his tagline over and over again as long as you're healthy that's his yeah, tagline at least you have your health he's like some grandma well at least you have your health yeah. and he's also very laurel of a laurel and hardy style character he's very, very fidgety and fumbly he was like cowardly lion like that's yes. what i got from that character and he everybody hates him that was my favorite part and the like a lot of times these characters are just tolerated or people pretend they're not annoying Everybody knows Elmer's annoying. Everybody, the, the editor keeps threatening to fire him. The police chief literally just threatens him a few times. And Elmer just walks around going, at least you have your health. And uh, he does bump into the fiend, which, yeah. by the way, we have to establish is very, very noticeable. The fiend is not somebody who blends in. He is a guy with a hunchback and a limp in a black like cape with a hat. So he is quite the character. He is not somebody that you'll casually bump into and not know who he is, which is presumably on purpose to give the to his other secret identities, of which there are apparently two or three, depending on how you count. All right. So now this is the third person that's died. The first two died before the movie even started. This mm -hmm. is the third person that's dead. They're back at the police station. They're discussing it. And they're talking. Oh this is like, this is so wild to me because the cops are like, yeah, well, is there a law against killing an adagio dancer? And it's like, what? <laughs> like, what? There was a person. And then the other the other cop goes, well, you know, he's just running around, you know, killing undesirables. And it's like, what is happening here? It's like they have a very poor opinion of Ted Wallington 
you know, and I guess the theater in general, like it was like it was pretty awful. It was almost kind of like, eh, well, okay, so he just killed that guy. And like, who cares? You know, that was yeah. wild. And there's definitely implication that theater wasn't particularly well respected. Uh, and, and in any way, that journalism, I think there was a lot of, you know, we used to call it yellow journalism. People would just sort of, you could pick, publish any kind of slander you wanted and people would get away with it. I think it's a different time. But it is sort of odd for us to hear, like, what do you mean? Like, this person was murdered in, okay, not broad daylight, but murdered in front of a bunch of people. And you're just like, eh, you know, is that a crime? Eh, make jokes. I'll go back to the office with you. Well, don't you think you better take a little rest? Oh, I couldn't sleep anyway. I'm numb from the neck both ways. After this, like, I was with it up until this point. Now it starts to get a little murky for me. The Fiend is still stalking people. They're now all staying at this hotel because they're afraid to be at home. But the Fiend still shows up at the hotel. And aside from that, we have another actor who comes along. His name is Reardon. And... He is sort of throwing a monkey wrench into the situation. He comes along and he's throwing Frank Gordon, the reporter, the plucky reporter's fiance, is trying to throw him uh, off the scent, essentially, and is like making up stuff. It's actually kind of a funny little scene where Reardon and Frank are in Frank's hotel room and Frank says, oh my gosh, the fiend is here and we have to call the police. And Reardon says, I'll do it. And he grabs the phone, right? And then he's like holding down the f- the phone. The receiver, yeah. The re- yeah, so he's holding it down. Okay, for kids who... who <laughs> We're going to have to do a little tutorial on how phones used to work. <laughs> I'm even trying to remember the last place I lived that had a phone that had an actual button that you hang up the phone. And when you hang up the, the receiver, it goes onto the button and that hangs up the phone, right? right. You know, not like our cordless phones or our cell phones that you press a button and it works. But it's more of a the the weight of the receiver is holding down the the button that shuts off the phone. And here's another thing that you have to remember. I have a prop. I know it's Mike has a prop, which you can't see because this is a podcast. And <laughs> it's like an old timey phone that the again, the weight of the receiver holds down the button and disconnects the line. Now, what you also have to remember about this time is that it's not like today that you pick up the phone and there's a dial tone and you dial. When you picked up the phone, there was an operator there. So usually a woman, and she would ask you where to connect the call because she was plugging and unplugging cords in order to connect you to wherever you needed to make your phone call. Didn't your mom say she did that for a a temporary job. My mom did that. Yeah. My mom yeah, worked for Michigan cool. Bell uh-huh. and was a switchboard operator. And literally, you think of those words together, switchboard operator. So you were plugging and unplugging lines to get to connect people. There weren't as many phones. So it wasn't, you know, a 10 digit number. It may have been a combination of letters and numbers, whatever. Or you may have given the address. It just depended. In any case, so Reardon says he's going to call the police, but if you pick up the line, someone's going to be there and ask you, like, where you want to call. So he can't fake it. He can't just pick up the phone like you and I could today, and it would just be nothing. You would hear it, but there would be nobody there. So he has to hold down the receiver. So he is. He's holding it down, and then he's holding it up to his ear and then making like he's calling he's actually calling the police so it's kind of funny so and he's sort of doing it like trying to keep it out of frank's field of view but then what happens elmer elmer (laughs) elmer Elmer calls frank so reardon is holding on to this phone presumably speaking to someone at the police department on it and it rings this is my favorite part of the film because, first of all, it could only happen in this movie. And second, it's Elmer, who, by his ridiculous nature, just all he has to do is make one phone call and he changes the whole story. Because Elmer's phone call changes everything all because of that. Right. So then Frank says, hey, what's the big idea? You yeah. know, and, and then and then him and Reardon are fighting and look like I could never stage a fight. If you and I staged a fight, 
Mike, and we were going to film it, it would probably look like what this fight looked like. <laughs> like it was pretty, it was funny. I could see they were trying. Yeah. I could I could see they were trying. And I think they speed these fights up. Almost every one this of these one old timey fights. This one didn't look sped up. Maybe this one wasn't. They always look weird. Like they just don't look right. But it was a lot of grappling. Let's just it was some that. grappling. <laughs> there weren't really any punches that landed. And and here's something else about the sound. We're so used to in more modern movies having everything have a sound. Think about like. The next time you're watching a movie and like you like a car stops, you know, like they're filming, they're filming the car pull up and then you see the car stop and the hood roll back. Somebody gets out of the car. You will hear like a little brake squeak. You will hear the door open. Normally, look, all this stuff is silent, right? Like if the car is making a noise when you stop it, like you got to get the car serviced. Normally, the door doesn't creak when you open it. You know, all of that. Okay. Somebody puts all of that in. And when there's a fight, a fist fight, and there is knuckles connecting with jaws, right? There's this, there's that noise. There's a little, you know, punchy noise. And you don't, none of that was put in. So to our modern eyes and ears, it seems a little strange and it seems like a little comical because we're waiting for that, you know, biff, pow, bam situation to be happening, which never happens. It's just a lot of shuffling and grunting. There's just not a lot of actual impact. I mean, presumably because a lot of the audio, we already mentioned there's audio issues, is just what's in the room, I guess. I think they're using these guys tussling. So there's just not a lot of solid impact sounds that let you know that there's actually a fight that we're used to as modern audiences to your point frankly i have no idea what they did for sound like i really have no like literally no idea a couple of the movies that we've watched so far you did see a boom here and there presumably that may may have been the technology that they were using at least in some cases but not here there there was no you know there was no sound added back in at least in this scene. I think in other scenes there probably was. All right. So again, it gets a little murky. There's a lot of people running around. You have the character of Peter Fortune, who is the playwright, the detective who is, is he's not an actual detective, no. but the police are using him because he's helped them solve crimes in the past. And Peter Fortune keeps talking about Sanchi, this person named Sanchi, who has helped him. So it's almost like a subcontractor. Before we get that far, though, so they're at the room in front of uh, the Plucky Reporters Hotel. Somewhere in between this battle with Reardon and Frank, the Fiend shows up again. Right. And tries to shoot him. Yeah. And misses again. Misses, yeah. So just to be clear, the Fiend's aim sucks. He is very bad at murdering people with whatever he's shooting. Well, so, I mean... So far, he's murdered four people, mm-hmm. so he can hit a target some of the time. <laughs> not, not the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then, so he gets away, right? Elmer, we have to, we can't let Elmer go. He because Elmer called on the phone, so he speaks to Frank, and Frank says, "Oh, okay, Elmer, you're actually on the phone. Call the police, for God's sake, call the police." And what happens? He passes out. For how long? Like an hour. Like more than an hour. He passes out. He doesn't call anybody. Which was so amazing because I thought this would be like a, we've seen it in cartoons, the character passes out, and it's funny for about a minute. They really committed to this bit that he had been unconscious in this phone booth, fainting presumably because he was upset about the circumstances of a potential murder that he can't see and or really hear, uh, and he was out for an hour. And they pick it up later. He does actually call the police and they're like, that was an hour ago, Elmer. What is wrong with you? I know. He's like, get over there right away, the fiend. Yeah. They're like, bro, that was so long ago. The fiend has come <laughs> and gone and like everybody's okay, but like we still didn't catch him. Yeah. You know? So so now we're back at the police station and Peter Fortune swans his way in and is ready to tell everybody their business about Sanchi. Right. He's like, oh, Sanchi is, you know... It's my, I don't even know what he calls him. He's like Sanchi, who's, you know, he's he's very reclusive and, you know, you can't talk to him. Only I can talk to him and whatever. And nobody questions this. Nobody's like, what the fuck? You're not like, you know, Superman and Clark Kent. What the hell is going on? And he's like, Sanchi lives in a shack. Only I know where the shack Only is. Only I know where it is. He has a hunchback and a limp. So this is probably him, by the way. 
But also, which is so fascinating, because not only does Fortune set this up, that it's he's got the only access to the only possible, uh, you know, person that, you know, literally the, the person who's committing this crime. It's got to be this guy, but he's not going to give any evidence or otherwise tell you who, how to get to reach him. He doesn't know what his face looks like. He, he sets this up later. He's like, you know, he's always been straight. I know he has this hunchback and he has a limp, but I don't know what actually what he looks like. So he could be any of the suspects that we think are potentially the, the police are suspects. So obviously Reardon was the first one, right? So right. we finally have somebody in custody and it's Reardon. Right. Because he was clearly trying to cover something up with his crazy phone receiver antics. Right. With 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 like making things up and and trying to get people to go places and do things under false pretenses and all of that. Yeah. 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 You know, but then. Right. They go back to the theater to reenact it, to reenact poor Ted Wellington's death. Now, Reardon is there at the at the reenactment. So. Everybody's there at the reenactment, except that there is some disagreement over where Reardon was during all of this. Right. Oh, and one other thing is Peter Fortune decides to tell us what the method of death is happening. Because they say, well, the everybody who's died up to this point, right? Or does it, I don't know if it happens after this, but I'm pretty sure when they were at the police station, they essentially say, oh, we don't understand how they're dying. They die from poison, but they're not, they're, they're, there's no wounds and fortune says no 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 i know because sanchi told me this it was a plot that he gives because sanchi gives him all his twisted ideas apparently so his muse is also potentially yeah. a murderer so by the way not not a muse that's not right. a muse <laughs> that is a person who is doing the writing and you are taking all of the credit this sanchi person is actually the person that is coming up with his plays his crime solving abilities you know we have a real like Roxanne situation going on yeah. here, you know. Yeah, and Peter Fortune does not care. He 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 just sort of serves it up like, yeah, you know, it's like I can just like Stephen King being like, yeah, secretly it was Sanchi who was telling me all my plots. Also, he's probably a murderer. Also, you can't talk to him. <laughs> only I can yeah, talk only to I him. Can talk to him. <laughs> and then he's like, and all so the cops here's are like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, all right. He's like, I know what it is because it was in one of our stories that Sanchi had told me. It's this gun. That shoots frozen bullets filled with poison. Right. Now, I don't know what Sanchi was thinking, and I'm not sure what The Fiend is thinking, and I sure as hell don't know whoever made this movie was thinking, but I'm pretty sure that if you get hit with a bullet made of ice, it leaves a wound. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think you even need poison to kill the person if you hit somebody with a bullet. First of all, I don't understand the mechanics of it not exploding or melting otherwise, but let's just assume you build a weapon that can shoot ice bullets. I don't think it needs to be poisoned ice bullets. So it's a very interesting cover-up well, because it doesn't – we also don't understand why he's covering the wound up. Like there's no reason for that to happen. Kind of not really. I mean like the only thing that I would say about that is that you're really making sure that this person is going to die. No matter where you hit them, as long as you hit them with the bullet and the bullet pierces the skin – yeah, they they are going to die. So you know you what don't... also kills people with bullets? Bullets. I know, I know. <laughs> you could also just like put the poison on a bullet on a regular bullet, right? Like I don't know. You, you could know, just shoot them. I don't. I... <laughs> because here's the thing: if if Peter Fortune wasn't going around telling everybody how the murderers were taking place, we don't know that they would have figured it out. Right. Like there's a there's a hilarious line <laughs> where the police chief says. The coroner was so confused, he almost did a postmortem on himself. <laughs> it was just like, it's hilarious. Like, there's there's some pretty good lines in this movie. I have to say, there there's, some, there's some definitely quotable things going on here, despite all of this other craziness. Well, so the police chief comes up with this great idea, which is he wants, because they couldn't figure out what happened in the dark, right? That was the issue. The lights went out. Yeah. So his master plan is you have to show up at the theater. I I keep saying thinking it's at midnight. I don't know if that's true because I'm no, it's not. That's 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 the other movie. movie. So you have to show up at the theater. I think it was ten o'clock in the morning, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But everybody has to wear the same clothes they were wearing. Same clothes. The fuck. (laughs) Which which I feel like may have been a little bit like you know what we can't get new (laughs) prop changes, so let's everybody just wear the same clothes. So they have to wear the same clothes. (laughs) And stand or sit wherever they were, and I guess they're going to reenact. Like I'm still like I don't know how this is going to make it obvious where how the murder happened. 
but they're going to do that. That's the big plan. With Reardon sort of nervously standing around in the theater, right, worried about what's about to happen. Well, he's like, I was standing next to Vera, and Vera's like, the fuck you weren't? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really very funny. <laughs> so anyway, they shut off the lights, right? Like, they try to do the whole thing, and the lights get shut off again, and who gets shot this time? Reardon. Reardon. Reardon, Reardon gets shot this time. Reardon. So, obviously, Reardon is not the fiend because he ends up dead. But don't worry, some rando off the street walks in and we can pin it on him. <laughs> so, this really confused me. You want to talk about, like, so men confusing. in hats and stuff? There's, like, all of a sudden there's a character looking at the screen and mildly horrified. And that turns out to be someone else who's, like, a rival person to pin this on of a rival theater the, the other theater bruce cromwell so poor bruce yeah walks in, into the plot we've never mentioned him before no. we don't know who he is no this and is like he, the fifth white guy in a hat <laughs> you know and he's the obvious person to blame right because he owns the theater as well potentially he would want the cast and crew of the theater that they're at which i forget the name of it but the theater that they're at to be murdered and then they're their show can't go on, and then maybe his show does better because he's across the street, which is true. They do decide at this point, they're like, all right, we're pulling the plug on this shit, you know, so they do, like, pull their advertising and decide that yeah, they can't. Yeah, they're like, no one's going to want to see this. They can't. This point, yeah, they're like, nobody's going to want to see it. They decide they're going to call it off. And so now there's one clue, finally. So finally, the fiend slash maybe Sanchi slash not reared in slash presumably Bruce, <laughs> has left a clue. There's a cigarette case that Frank finds. Right. And now this is a bigger problem than we actually understand, right? So this is a weird thing because the cigarette case, when you find out later, is way more important to anyone actually understanding how important the cigarette case is. So Frank doesn't know why it's important. Other than he's now curious about who owns the cigarette case he has an inkling, I'm pretty sure that's Peter Fortune's, and now he's finally suspicious of Peter Fortune. Like, he's finally like, huh. Yeah. Why was the cigarette case of Peter Fortune, who shouldn't have been up wherever he was, right? It's it's a, it's a presumably it's like, like an attic or something. Up, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere up. So Up on like he, a catwalk or whatever, right? They, like, right? they never use those terms, but yeah. So he's now suspicious, and he starts digging. And the other thing we have to mention is lurking behind all this is this weird bounty slash reward slash money that's being dangled by the editor in chief that you're going to the story of who the fiend is is worth two thousand dollars. So there are a lot of stakes riding on this for Frank, who it is implied doesn't make a lot of money. Um, and certainly our plucky reporter well, also mentions no. that, you yeah. know. Journalists have never made a lot Gene, of money. Gene is like, to, you know, to this day. <laughs> he proposed, but we're not getting married because we can't afford it. So you can see where no, this no, is no. going. No, which no, is... no, no, that's not what's said. It's like, when are when are you guys going to get married? I think Elmer asks. So of he asks, Elmer asks Gene, when are you going to get married? And she's all, well, whenever I can get him to the altar, you know, because, yeah. oh boy, because being married is just such a chore, you know, like that seems to be the whole thing because elmer because elmer's a big ding dog so he repeats that later in front of frank and gene's like oh, I love Gene's elmer. like no that's not no i would never i would never i gotta drag him to the altar yes frank so frank, frank is certainly interested in peter fortune now he may not be interested in marriage but he's interested in peter fortune and he finds out that there was a play produced 10 years ago that a fire broke out. I guess there's something about a fight. I don't know. I understand. But there's a fire broke out and it killed a bunch of people. But we think it killed Fortune's brother too. Yeah. So now this is weird because suddenly there's presumably a motive of revenge that potentially could motivate Fortune. But uh, Aside from the fact that Fortune only knows who Sanchi is, says <laughs> Sanchi is the person, says, by the way, that he doesn't know what Sanchi's face looks like. So it could be Reardon or it could be Bruce Cromwell. So – and also – very specifically and explicitly explains how the gun works. Yeah. Um, with his ice poison bullets or poison ice bullets. So he's now come up with this whole idea that essentially, you know, Frank is is on the case. But I think it involves Elmer. Elmer's the one who actually decides to track him down. Yes. And finds this mystery shack. I love mystery shacks. We had that with 
chat <laughs> right anatomy of a psycho this is like right. a sh- like i don't know where the shacks are they seem to not be related to any they seem like to be a set somewhere unto themselves that no one knows about but in this case uh it is clearly the secret hideout of sanchi which because uh, elmer follows him there which is great because we do get to actually see people drive in old-timey cars right around the neighborhood which again with the sound like you're hearing the sound of the traffic and the cars and all of that and it's interesting too because you know you're they're filming outside they're filming these cars that's not and filming people driving that's not easy to do although at one point i think one of the cars stalls which is pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> it's like that tracks um i think elmer's car actually stalls wow now that i think about that was that a gag was that part of the gag that his with car... elmer you never know yeah or did it just organically happen anyway yeah, so they're all driving around and ending up at this at this shack. And so Elmer definitely tells Frank, he's like, I found his hideout. He's that guy. Frank's like, call the police. And then Frank goes there. I don't understand exactly why they don't meet up or Elmer's not. There's like a little bit of like people are leaving and coming back. Yeah. And then Frank goes in. Who has a gun, by the way? The other thing that's funny about the 1930 stuff is there's never a question if any of these reporters just have a gun. They just have a gun. They just do. So he's like armed and ready to deal with presumably Sanchi slash Peter Fortune slash whoever. And then we get the big reveal. Right. Such as it is. Well, what was so funny about that is that you have Peter Fortune. He's there. He's in the shack. He's still talking about Sanchi as if Sanchi is a separate person from him. And then he finally says, because... After Frank Gordon confronts him and says the cigarette case and like the whole deal, like, like, bro, we know it's you. And he's like, yeah, I'm Sanchi and Sanchi is me and Sanchi's amazing and has done all this stuff for me. It is it is, again, a very I'm reminded of of Psycho, you know, taking on a personality of another person. Was Sanchi an actual real person at some point? Like, I don't know. But he was putting on this outfit and walking around and acting like a different person and affecting a disability and doing all of this stuff, you know, so he was really into it. So maybe even in his mind, it was two different people. I don't know. And he seems like, I mean, somebody said this is like one of the first early serial killer films. I mean, he was pretty motivated. I don't know if I'd call him that. I feel like he was clearly, he had revenge. Uh, against the theater and he would they gave him a reason but they also implied he was he had some kind of mental illness i mean i think that was they they sort of implied that there's there is a thread starting to get annoying i'm starting to see it where essentially if you're a good crime writer we think you're actually a murderer um it does come off that way we've seen this in a few films now that the guys who are the best criminologists are always the people who try to commit the perfect crime right Right. um and in this case carried forward today to like dexter you know like absolutely yeah but but that also makes sense because why would you ever be a suspect? Why would right. you ever be a suspect? You're there all the time helping people, helping solve these crimes. They're never going to suspect you because they have a personal relationship with you. So, like, that, that's kind of a smart move, I guess. Except he went a little far in describing how he thought the thing worked. I mean, the coroner couldn't figure it out. None of the cops could figure it out. The journalists couldn't figure it out. It is uh, definitely implied that Fortune's ego is that he wants to tell you, right? This happened. Yes. I keep saying this was, I don't know if it was murder at midnight or I think it was, where they, they, the, the person wants to tell you, they're, they're telling right. you without telling you, essentially, right? Right. right. And, and this comes up with the, the cigarette case, which no one, <laughs> no one bothered to check the cigarette case. So Frank's had the cigarette case in his pocket, by the way. So he has evidence that he found that he didn't give to the police. He runs around with it. It's in his pocket. It's not cold for reasons I don't understand because this is some freezing cigarettes. And He's keeping the bullets in it. Right. That's, that's what, what Fortune that's reveals. What, yeah. Fortune reveals, you know, the big secret isn't just that there's cigarettes in here that it belongs to me. And he shows the other side of the compartment and he shows that there are five, six frozen poison bullets in there as well. Now, I'd love to know what magical 1930s technology keeps bullets frozen in a little tiny cigarette case for days on end. But whatever that was, he had it. And that is his final act before he's about to kill Frank. Right. And then there's a window in the shack. 
Yes. Uh, well, I guess. I don't know. And then he falls over and dies. <laughs> because there's a window, because the police have also shown up, and one of them shoots Peter Fortune. Maybe? Slash Sanchi. You know. We don't actually know what happens because the audio doesn't happen. So there is no sound of gunshots at all. And Peter Fortune, Peter Fortune just grabs his neck and falls over. I yeah. thought maybe he had, if I had redone this, I thought he maybe touched his bullet by accident, the oh, poison bullet. The water. Because it was so, yeah, the water. <laughs> the water. It melted. <laughs> it finally melted and he died, you know, because it's, you know, supposed to be really dangerous ice bullets, poison ice bullets. But uh, I think the police are supposed to shoot him. It's yeah. just they didn't put that sound in, and yeah. he keels over at the last moment. Yeah. And again, I don't know if that's typical of these movies, but it, it was just so odd that so much of the part of the sound design and editing was so beautifully done and thought out, and then other parts of it were just completely, completely missing. So now there's an epilogue. We're back at the – so the, the murder is situation is resolved, I, I guess. Um, we know Peter right. Fortune was Sanchi. Right, Gordon gets his story. He got his story. Well, not only because Elmer technically cracked the case. This is what I keep saying. Yeah, Elmer's actually really credit. important. Well, he gets some of it. He's going to divide it up amongst the other reporters. And what does Elmer No, but do? they were going to give the whole thing to Frank. Oh, were they going to give it all yes, to him? Yes, they were going to give all the money to Frank. And then Frank was like, I'm going to sign this check also – kids by the way whenever you owed somebody a lot of money that you couldn't give them cash sometimes you would write out a little piece of paper <laughs> that would say i owe so and so this much money and you'd give that paper to that person that person would take it to their bank and deposit they, did, they it. didn't give it all the friend i know they didn't because they elmer they gives them his as a gift no listen telling you <laughs> they give the money to frank frank's gonna sign it over to elmer and then oh. elmer's like no you right, he gets take it, it all it's my wedding present to you and it's to this two thousand dollars right that they for for so there's like a little exchange there. right for you know catching the fiend and and incidentally frank didn't say i'm gonna spend this money and get married elmer puts frank on the spot he gives it to gene. he really that. gives right. it to gene yes he's like here this is my wedding present to you so he's kind of forcing everyone's hand you know hand god bless here. elmer what a good egg what a good, i well, love him i he, at least you have your health elmer i know and like and he gets that tagline in one more time but <laughs> but then but then it's funny because then gene has to say you know it's just not natural for people to be alone like you should get married too I'm like, like there's bitches everywhere. Like, like, like there's nobody after Elmer. Well, it's as hilarious. is often the case in these kinds of movies, there's one person, one woman, and she's the love interest for everyone involved. Like, that's it. There's only one, the end. So it's always interesting because yeah. yeah. she, she carries the emotional burden of representing all women in the movie. Right. Anyway, so the end. Happy end. So, yeah. And they live happily ever after. Sanchi's dead. He's only killed. I mean, you know, he was pretty effective, by the way. So as a serial killer, he killed a lot of people. Yeah. Like five people. Yeah. He, he killed five people. Yeah. At least. Yeah. So, and not counting, like, did he practice beforehand? Like, I don't know how you develop these poison. I, I'm going to say poison ice bullets, not ice yeah. poison bullets. No, I thank you. Yeah. I was trying to the get that poison right. Yes, ice poison bullets. ice bullets. There may have been some people that he had to try it out on. Who knows? We don't it's very know. Very sophisticated. He had to make a special gun. He says that. He's like, yeah. I have a special gun. It only shoots one bullet at a time. So he right. had this whole issue where you sort of miss it and then it, you're sort of done. He had a lot of bullets in his little case there. But I mean, this was quite sophisticated for a playwright with a grudge. Well, he had 10 years to noodle on it. So mm -hmm. anyway, so one last thing. Uh, the $2,000 reward in 1936. Guess how much money that would be today? Uh, 20000 Higher. Uh, 30000 Higher. It's got to be $40,000. $40,000. $2,000 in 1936 would be valued at $40,000 today. I can't imagine such a high reward ever being given out. Usually when you see these rewards, I think you do usually see like $10,000, $20,000, not forty. Well, so, now, was it a reward or was it for the article being published? No, I, it was a reward. It was a reward for what? Yeah, for... 
for having evidence or for information leading like yeah information leading to the arrest of which i guess they got him (laughs) i mean the police shot him i don't know know, if he was albert found him yeah. Frank showed up and basically bungled his way into the whole thing. Right, I mean, right, Elmer should right, be the hero. I, right. I'm pro Elmer. All right. Here's a question. Here's our, our question that we end every summary with. Is this a horror movie or something else? I mean, the audio is horrible. <laughs> it's not a horror movie. No. I think it's officially uh, qualified as a mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You don't really know. Like, you definitely think it's Reardon for a while. You don't really know what's going on for a little while until he starts talking about Sanchi. Like, I'm the only one who knows where Sanchi is. And then you go, oh, well, you know, then that's him. Yeah, right, right. And it's it, it, uh, the technical term usually is whodunit. Whodunit. Uh, it's a whodunit that's for sure. Technical term. Yeah, yeah, the whodunit. <laughs> the whodunit, the mystery. W-H-O-D-U-N-N-I-T, whodunit. Uh, but yeah, I think it was who done it. I think that was the case. So as usual, there's a very loose term for horror uh, in this collection. But uh, you know, I had a serial killer guy who was you know, you know, help help lady was clearly horrified. So oh yeah, I mean, like I said, start it started off real strong. <laughs> So let's move on to our ratings. We're going to rate it knives, wine glasses, and screams. So first up between zero and five knives. And the knife is going to represent how many murders there were, how gory it was, things like that. So Mike, how many knives would you give a face in the fog? Well, there's no faces in the fog. There's no no fog. There's no fog. Um, (laughs) There's no fog anywhere in the movie. No, but there is definitely murders. There's, you know, as we said, there's five. Uh, They sort of, I guess they actually happen on screen. I mean, two of them had happened prior. Three three of them happen on screen, and then two of them happen before the movie starts. So the man did kill um, five people, plus he dies at, presumably, is dead at the end. So So six deaths. It's a decent, I mean, I never know what the upper limit for five deaths is, in five uh, knives. I'm kind of like, I don't know, I guess we'll know it when we get there. But I I would give it three. I think there was like a decent number. No kidding. yeah, I feel like there was enough people being killed that uh, I would say that's pretty good. You know, between two and three, but I, I think it's on the three scale of deaths. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I don't think we've had that many up to this point. Um, no, I mean the Bloody Pit of Horror had maybe close to that many. Oh, that's deaths. true. Yeah. I forget how many people died in that movie. Ah, they all blended Probably together. Probably somewhere between <laughs> four and six. Yeah, okay. there was quite a few, and those people were tortured. So that was higher on the on the knife scale. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to give it a 2.5. There were there were a lot of murders. Two of them happened off screen and we didn't see them. Also, I think there was some tension with what was going on. You had th- three times, notably to me, the very first scene where the fiend shows up and Jean runs out of her house. And then the scene where Reardon is trying to fake like he's making a phone call and the phone rings. That's actually really cool. Like, I don't think I've ever seen that happen in a different movie. Like, that's that's pretty cool. You know, and then at the end where Frank and Fortune are and slash Sanchi are there trying, you know, like verbally sparring and and they're trying to one up one another. So some tension there. Like that was that was pretty cool. But I mean, essentially, people are just being murdered from a gunshot from far away while basically they're just standing there or going about their lives. And then all of a sudden they just get shot. So like, that's not, that's not that great. So, but anyway, I'll give it, I'll give it two and a half knives. Fair. Okay. So let's move on to wine glasses between zero and five wine glasses. And this represents how much fun did we have watching this movie? Was it enjoyable? And, you know, how maybe applicable was it to a date night? So how many wine glasses would you give this movie, Mike? So I'm a little conflicted. I really like the concept. I think I'm probably more in love with the concept than the execution, right? So I I actually really like all the ideas. I love the ridiculous gun. I love the absurd secret identity. I love the arrogance of Peter Fortune. 
Um, frankly, the, the leading man is probably the most boring thing about this film. Oh, like yeah, everybody sure. else is hilarious. Like Elmer's great. The police chief even just can't stand Elmer. I love that. Um, I just even the editor in chief was annoyed. I just thought well, they, it was all they great. all had lines. Like yeah. even Jean has a really cool line <laughs> where she goes, she goes, I can't sleep tonight. I'm numb from the neck both ways. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like you go, what? And you have to think about that for a minute. You know, like they've all got good lines. Frank, Frank really doesn't have anything. No, he really doesn't. Which, yeah. you know, to the detriment, because it's almost like you could remove Frank, actually. She could have saved herself. She could have done everything. She, she could have done, done everything, everything herself. She could have done everything. And it would have been probably yeah. even more interesting. Her and Elmer. Yeah. Yeah. Because Elmer's really involved with everything one way or the other. And, you know, he's used for comedic relief. That's the other thing that's sort of interesting is there's definitely elements of comedy, but it's yeah. still part of the plot. Yes. Which that doesn't sometimes you get comedy for the sake of comedy just be a moron and that's okay but it's very lowbrow like haha just to distract you from the rest of it so i i have to say i actually enjoyed this film a lot conceptually the audio hurt <laughs> hurt me to my core like hurt like yeah. physically yeah. i was shot by an, a poison ice bullet hurt mm-hmm. so um that definitely Distracted from some of the experience a little bit. Yeah. Um. So I think we end up at a three. I want to go higher, but I can't because of that. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm going to stick with my two point five for this one. It did grow on me on subsequent viewings. It really did. The character of Jean grew on me. Elmer also. I think the thing about the comedic relief is that first off, it's way harder to be funny than it is to be dramatic, you know? So the funniest person is usually, like, the best actor and the smartest person because being witty is way more difficult than it is to just be anything else, you know, to be the the love interest or anything like that. So I did really have a respect for what they did because it was called A Poverty Row movie and yet there were many sets there was a lot of extras there was a very choreographed dance scene and then the way the music was used in that scene so that that all you know went a long way like I forgave the not hearing punches and not hearing actual gunshots the phrase I'd use is ambitious like, I felt this film was ambitious. Right. Really ambitious, I would say. Really ambitious. And it had a lot of story to tell, and it really raced through it in 55 minutes. It could have used – it could have been an hour and a half movie, and Easy. then maybe I wouldn't have had to watch it, like, three times in order <laughs> to understand what really happened. So, yeah. Yeah. but also too, like we've talked about these movies in that they weren't necessarily meant to be seen over and over again, but honestly, two a one with everything that we've reviewed so far. And so I'm going to say it's probably going to occur through the rest of them as well. You do pick something. I get something out of a repeat viewing. They're not like a, let me just watch it once and be done with it. You know, you watch it again and you do get more out of it, whether it is, something cultural, something that is from the time, you know, like us explaining about how telephones worked in that time, you know, like something like that, that could only work in that time and place. You could not have that today. The plot wouldn't work. You'd have to change it in some way. So it was, it was enjoyable on, in, in that, in that respect. So, but probably not everybody's going to want to watch this movie three plus times. All right, so how many screams? So overall, how did we how did we like this movie? How are we feeling about it in an in an overall kind of way, taking all of the different things that we've discussed into account between zero and five? What do you think, Mike? Well, spoiler alert. I mean, if you take the two other numbers, we've both been pretty consistent. Yeah. So I, I'd say a three. You say a three? Um, yep. Yeah. I, I like. I, I think I. Lo- I just was a little bit more enamored of this film than you were, but I, I think you know conceptually all the things we just discussed definitely a solid three. Yeah, I would have to agree with a with a three. You know, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily meeting the criteria for a horror movie. I don't think it was something that 
when you're watching it for date night that you're going to be like, wow, this is like super fun. You know, although, you know, frankly, have an edible, you know, have a glass of wine, something, have a cocktail, and maybe you could keep track of how many times there's some weird audio situation or how many times you see a blooper. You know, that's something, again, on repeat viewings that I notice. Like in the beginning, Jean is going to get into the cab, but then she doesn't get into the cab, but then they show her holding the door open of the cab, but then she's standing next to the cab with the door closed. And like, I forgive all of that, okay? You know, I mean, look, it's not easy to make a movie. Like I have respect for everybody involved in the process. Like they're all doing the best they can and they're doing great. A lot of the acting in this movie was not wonderful. And so that's why Elmer comes along and he's the comedic part of it and is just like steals focus, frankly, steals focus in every scene that he's in because he's actually acting and he has something to do versus like Frank, who's just kind of like bumbling around. So, yeah, so I'm going to give it three screams for that for for overall my overall rating. Oh, good. Well, that's surprised. I didn't think you were going to come up to three. So good. Welcome to uh, the Elmer fan club. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like 2.5 might not be. Look, all these people are probably dead, but <laughs> but I think they deserve some respect for <laughs> the amount of care and attention that was clearly put into this movie. And you know what the other thing is, is that like this is the outset of film, right? This is just the beginning. So what they're doing with it I think, is, you know, really you have to give them a lot of respect and give them a lot of kudos for the things that they're figuring out. You know, we have 100 years of film behind us. You know, they didn't have that. So I, th- I, I just, I think that's pretty cool and that we have to, we, ha- we have to show respect for what they were trying to achieve, even if it didn't necessarily achieve it. All right, let's move on to the character that we are creating out of this film. We, I say we, really, it's Mike. Mike creates these (laughs) characters that are for use in tabletop role-playing games. I'm not going to guess. I'm not going to hazard a guess as to to what this character is. I'm just going to let it unfold. I'm just going to watch it like a flower (laughs) unfolding in front of me as I ask you, who is this character mike well it, it, one of the things that's great about this is that it the movie definitely sort of mixes genres and that's always catnip to any kind of role-playing game because we love that right because most role-playing games are always a mix it, it's rare that doesn't mean that there aren't but a lot of role-playing games always mix some technologies a little bit of sci-fi and puts it all together so uh this is a character a lot of times i try to avoid um technology but there's no way this is indelible so this is the fiend by day he's peter fortune by night he is sanchi he's a shape changer so that means he actually turns into the character it's not a disguise he like turns into that character uh he has a poison ice bullet did we say that what did you say was it an ice poison no poison ice bullet a poison ice bullet not an ice poison bullet bullet. it was a poison ice bullet uh pistol uh which again in role-playing terms means he does cold damage and then poison damage um, but he's essentially this ca- kind of creepo character that's very smart, right? Because part of the challenge is that he's not just this serial killer, essentially. He's also, in theory, uh, depending on your perspective, this criminal mastermind, as well as a playwright. So he's kind of this bard who's taken it upon himself to have this alter ego that murders people he don't like. And that ranges from rival critics to other theater troops to other whatever. You take your pick. He's very petty. And just imagine, you know, sort of the most petty uh, kind of uh, playwright who murders you if he didn't like what you have to say, which I think makes him very entertaining as a villain because, you know, player characters are constantly offending somebody. Right. Okay. So I can guess from what you were just saying that he's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. But what are the rest of his stats? Well, you know, Peter Fortune's quite charismatic, so that's a, a huge piece of this. But uh, when he transforms, he's also very dexterous. He's he's this sort of sneaky monster that, which is interesting and ironic because, again, uh, for a hunchback slash limp character, he was pretty effective, though he did miss a few times uh, in murdering people. So, but in the game statistics, that's for sure. He's definitely uh, pretty stealthy. 
um, as well as uh, quite charismatic because by day he's fooling everybody that he's this person that's here to help. And he's also a great playwright. So presumably he's, we don't know if he acts, but he's certainly somebody who could put on a performance and it'd be really good. So he's, he's got sort of this secret side of, of uh, the deadly killer statistics, but by day he's this charismatic, brilliant man. Right. And so because he's involved with the theater, I imagine that he might be found in a city or even with a traveling theater troupe. Where else might this character be used? What kind of games might he be used in? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So he's definitely always interesting. If you have characters who are bards, he's the kind of character that would be great to introduce early, right? Because one of the things with any of these characters is their alibis, right? So it's always hard to cement that, especially if you don't have a police force, a modern day police force. Um, But having him part of this traveling troupe, I think, would be perfect. Uh, Again, if there's not a traveling troupe, then the other side of it is an established theater in a large city, like you said. So that's perfect. Same thing. Uh, one of the things that's sort of interesting, of, of course, is that rivals, right? So having rival theaters, having rival playwrights is part of the fun because it certainly means that maybe he's not immediately the first person to blame if somebody's getting poisoned and frozen to death. So he he, uh, he plays best in sort of civilized areas. But if, if there was a traveling troupe, he could work just as well. The key, of course, is to have these murders happen without him to obviously be the blame because, of course, he, he can transform. And then he transforms back, right? So he's not always clearly this person. But one of the things we, you know, in the game statistics is he's very, he, Sanchez are another part of his personality. So he's sort of got this, this, he's almost like a werewolf, right? It takes over when he uh, gets jealous or vindictive. Um, so he could really fit in anywhere, but he probably fits in best in sort of a urban setting. Right. It kind of gives me Fight Club vibes a little totally. bit. Am I spoiling Fight Club for anybody at this point? I don't know how old that movie First is First rule is we don't talk about Fight Club. Oh, so. shit. <laughs> anyway, so where can people find this character so that they can download it and play it in their own tabletop role-playing games? So he'll be available for free on patreon.com slash Talien, T-A-L-I-E-N. That's my Patreon. And uh, we always, we, we, I'm always happy to share uh, content uh, for free just to give you a taste. And he will also be included as part of a full supplement, uh, which will be called 5e Foes Gothic Villains. And that supplement is actually compatible with 5e RPG Gothic Adventures. So uh, it, it sort of all links together. And uh, that will be available for sale on DriveThruRPG. But the character himself will be available for free on the Patreon, on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Italian. All right. Perfect. And so I think that wraps it up. We will put everything that we discussed in the show notes, including a link to where you can watch this movie as many times as you want, as, where, as well as where you can find the character and any other shit we decide to put in there. And, but uh, that'll do it for episode nine of 50 Date Night Screams, A Face in the Fog, which had neither a face nor any fog but anywhere. at least we have our health. At least we have our health. Okay. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining me on this adventure. Thanks, Amber. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at patreon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Every single friggin' time. What? Every single time, I'm like, where is the record button?